Hello, and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com or on your favorite podcast listening platform. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-founder of this podcast and today's host. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is solving the industry's talent crisis by organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm very excited to welcome Keith Flaherty, Director of Clinical Research at the Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center and Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Wonderful to have you on today, Keith. Thanks, Rahul. It's great to be speaking with you today. Great. So, Keith, to kick us off, talk to us about the arc of your career and how you got to where you are today and the decisions you've made along the way to go from place to place. Yeah, okay. I'll try to kind of timestamp the answer to that a little bit in this way. I'm a medical oncologist and I've been in the field for 22 years. So like got into oncology the year 2000. Notable year because that was when Gleevec was in patients in phase one and responses were first being seen. So backing up just a little bit before that, what drew me into oncology was the notion that genomic insights were beginning to accumulate and that that might actually begin to turn into therapy. And so I was literally in my first year of fellowship in the year that Gleevec first started producing responses in phase one. And I was pumping my fist like, yes, like this is happening. And then around me were lots of other people saying, wait, CML is like not even cancer. Like, what are you talking about? Like, what's this? What are you getting so excited about? Like, it's, you know, this is chronic myelogenous leukemia. And it's like, it's nothing to do with the rest of cancer. Don't get so excited. Anyway, point being that I thought, you know, we were potentially onto something as a field. And what I wanted to do is kind of enlist myself in, you know, what I now refer to as clinical translational research. Didn't have that phrasing quite down at the time. I wanted to be, you know, in the clinic. I wanted to be conducting clinical trials. I wanted to understand, like, in the clinic, were drugs doing their molecular job, yes or no? If no, that takes you down one path. If yes, then another. So I trained in early phase clinical trial methodology. I trained in translational research of various sorts. What I now refer to as kind of bedside events translational research is really what I mean. And I did that work for nine years at the University of Pennsylvania, focusing on melanoma and kidney cancer. Melanoma was where signal transduction wiring diagram was being well worked out. BRAF mutations were discovered in 2002, like very, very early in my career. I focused on that. I'm known for a lot of the work that I've done in that area, developing BRAF inhibitors, MEK inhibitors, BRAF MEK combinations, you know, and that's obviously now a standard of care set of therapies, but it doesn't end there um, in terms of really trying to understand when you get your foot in the door, how can you then blow it open, right? How do we actually build multi-agent regimens that at least do what has been done in HIV, Right. So understanding from therapeutic resistance, like how do you build rational combinations and at least sort of produce remissions that are durable for a long period of time, if not actually curing patients, that's what we're ultimately aiming for, of course. And I've, for 22 years, I've been hammering away at that. In 2009, I was recruited to Mass General to continue the work I was doing in melanoma, but to build out a group that basically pursued the same approach broadly across cancer. And so that led to the formation of the Tremere Center, Henry Henry and Belinda Tremere being our generous donors that um, supported the foundation of um, that unit. So we created the Tremere Center as a phase one, but also clinical translational program. We have 21 faculty who run around doing the work that I just summarized, built that program, led that program, handed off its day-to-day operations a few years ago, but still now in pushing hard to try to really professionalize our bedside advanced translational research around therapeutics so that we can be the best possible partner to the entire sector. Great. So when you decided to initially go to medical school, I'm curious, you know, were you looking at perhaps other avenues and professions or had you decided, you know, hey, this is definitely what I want to do? And then secondarily, when you started medical school, did you know that you wanted to specialize in oncology? 
it's as though I planted that question because uh, it's it's one that, I, <laughs> one that I kind of love talking about in other circles, actually, in talking to trainees who are thinking about charting a course in biomedical research broadly. I you know, was thinking of a very different path. I was an undergraduate. I was a neuroscience major. And mind you, that was from 93 to 97. And what an exciting time to be around neuroscience. I mean, neuroscience was really coming into its own. So the cell biology of neurons and the biochemistry and so on was being unraveled in a really powerful way. And to me, sort of the biology of the mind and the philosophy of mind, if you will, like how our complex brains operate, nothing could have been more exciting and enthralling. So I love that. I was at Yale at the time, which is one of the places that was a real epicenter of that research and recruiting a bunch of faculty. It was an amazing major. I went to medical school looking to keep that going. I mean, I was super excited by the science. And I orchestrated my clinical rotation so that I would do clinical neurology first, because at Hopkins, where I was a medical student, you could customize a bit in that way. So I put neurology as my first clinical rotation, like in the spring of my second year. So that's when we started our clinical rotations. I showed up in that rotation, spent a month on that rotation, having lots of conversations in addition to trying to get a feel for the discipline. And I was paralyzed and terrified. I was like, oh my God, the science and the medicine like have nothing to do with each other. <laughs> like, I, like I can't have a conversation about axonal regeneration in the midst of these clinical environments because like, it's seemingly light years, maybe generations before the science and the medicine are actually going to come together. So I panicked and started scrambling, trying to find another discipline where the science and the medicine seemingly might not be so far apart. And I just continued to have conversations with really bright minds at Hopkins and found cancer. I mean, like, you know, of course, it's like cancer is not like a top secret problem. But my point is that, you know, I was totally naive on the topic of the way in which molecular insights were being gained in oncology. And I think as you and this audience know well, so many of the tools, I mean, like literally just like DNA sequencing, were being put to work in cancer already, like well ahead of other disciplines, right? So I just started unpacking it for initially DNA and then then ensued at the RNA and protein level, I would argue as well. And then kind of the systems biology perspective, oncology just like was seemingly ahead of other disciplines in terms of just kind of figuring out, if you will, what went wrong, at least at the genetic level. It was just that high level insight, if you will, or sense that drew me in. And I was just like all guns blazing from that point. Going into residency, I basically, I chose a residency that I thought would give me the most exposure to oncology and really like set me up for just moving straight into cancer research, which reasonably worked out. Yeah, I'd say so. And so to that point, you've now founded a number of different biotechs. Talk to us a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and how you decided to pursue some of these opportunities. So yeah, nine years ago, I co-founded my first company, Loxo Oncology, with Josh Belinker, who notably I'd done fellowship with at Penn, so in 2002 timeframe. We got to know each other best at Penn, and he had an interest in early drug development during fellowship. Many people who are listening to this know who he is. So Loxo was quite a successful company, and he's now moved on to starting another quite inspiring oncology-targeted therapy company more recently. And I think if it weren't for Josh, I don't know that I would have not just an answer to your question, but like then gone on to found in total seven companies over the past nine years. He's the one who opened the door and I guess in a way got me addicted to the idea that basically having a seat at the table at the earliest possible point of framing even the concept of a company, which you can flesh out you know, a little bit more as you like. But really, let me put it this way. As an academic investigator who has partnered with companies large and small, first in human clinical trials, like so phase one clinical trials, like treating the first human beings after the last mouse has been treated. In that transition, that sounds early to many people, right? Like, oh, you're like, you're, you're really early in the process of therapeutic development. No, you're not. Early is conceiving of the idea. 
of even contemplating going after a target, let's say, or engineering a cell or what you know, what, like the, the target product profile, as I call it, when that's starting to come together in a very conceptual way, that's early, right? That, and and I, what I learned was over and over again, by the time I was meeting with a sponsor, let's say a year before an IND was filed, that's when a development candidate has been nominated, right? And so everything's been done. Like all the decisions have been made. Like target product profile was conceived and let's go with small molecule targets here and just say that like MedCam campaign was run from hit finding to lead up and DC nomination. Lots of decisions were made. Lots and lots of decisions were made. And here I'm presented with like the outcome of that. And you can ask as many questions as you want. You're not going to change the development candidate. And like the IND is already now more often than not in process, right? So like it's fully baked. I went through that process so many times and just accumulated this sense or like, no, I, I think there's a role for, let's call it people like me, <laughs> people who are like, you know, basically who take care of patients who run clinical trials, who try to understand whether drugs are doing their molecular job or not, you know, clinical translational bedside to bench translational research. Like the people like me, we have a thing or two to say about what we're aiming for. Like, you know, the, like as in the patient population we're trying to treat and like the nature of their unmet need, the nature of the met need, let's say, like kind of what is available therapy really offer? What is it not? Solving backward from there all the way back to this concept of kind of the fully fleshed out target product profile. And I don't just mean drug-like properties. I mean like the patient population, the model systems in which you would evaluate this drug. But before the PDX campaign, like the more reduced models, if you will, is there a through line? Do we even have models like to help us navigate this. I mean, we can talk about immuno-oncology and the way in which we haven't had models to navigate that versus tumor cell intrinsic vulnerabilities. In any case, so really working your way step by step by step backwards and then figuring out how the world turns in medicinal chemistry. Like, like what are the problems of medicinal chemistry trying to solve? What tools are they trying to use to solve them? And learning that dialogue, like these were the things that drew me in. And now having had a seat at you know, multiple tables and you know, obviously ongoing to this day, Wow, is it satisfying? I mean, it's just, I would never want to give up either side, right? Like this like academic day job footprint and patient advocacy role almost, you could call it. I'd never want to give that up. But wow, has it been motivating, empowering, super satisfying to have this other, I guess, set of footprints, if you will. As you can probably tell from what I'm saying, like I'm such an evangelist for the idea that like we need people from the entire ecosystem, if you will participating in these discussions and all the way back to company formation principles. Like how do, how do we actually even think about framing, uh, you know, kind of the profile of a company that is going to return value to investors, right. But has a path towards actually addressing a real world problem, like both things and having enough conversations to really hammer that model uh, together. Who knew that this would be a joyful exercise, you know, 10 years ago, but man, it's, it certainly has been. And you brought up an interesting point, Keith, around company formation and the concept of a company for the aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening or those that are in the midst of you know, fundraising or whatever the case may be. What are some common mistakes you've seen along the way? And you know, what's the right way to do it from your perspective? Okay. Well, so from the company formation perspective, and you know, I'm so focused on oncology, you just have to like, yeah, just, like, you know, yeah let's focus make, on that. Yeah. Just make the disclaimer here that I, like, I'm talking about oncology and everything yeah. I'm saying. I, I think there's crossover okay. relevance to other disciplines, but much of what I'm saying is so heavily attuned to the oncology ecosystem. So I guess basically what I would say, maybe it has always been an issue, but it's certainly an issue in the present era that people are very focused on the idea that they have like an insight, a tool, a thing. That is like their special thing, right? It's that they and their and their co-founders have unique expertise in that particular like facet, if you will. And then get very focused on basically trying to kind of 
don't know, wall off in a way like that idea and like figure out how to really amplify the value of that and, you know, execute around trying to like use that tool or platform to, you know, try to drive to a result that moves the needle for patients. And that's great. But my point is this, that like what I, I guess what I most commonly see is that it's not just the whole like kind of life cycle that I was alluding to before, like, you know, kind of working backwards from the end, you know, like to your starting point, but keep that in mind. But I guess also what I see is oftentimes a lack of appreciation of, let's say, the interplay between therapeutics, diagnostics and broadly construed data, right? In other words, like how, like, how do you think about leveraging or accelerating, you know, the development path, but also like just situating your insight in the larger context? Like, how do you understand if you are able or unable to pick out the patient population who is most likely to benefit from your therapy and at least enrich for it, if not very, very specifically select for it? I will remind people that even point mutations that activate oncogenes match with therapies don't produce 100% response rates and certainly not 100% complete response rates, right? So like, it's not like we have like perfect biomarkers anywhere that we use for patient selection, but there's a whole gradient of enrichment strategies, if you will. And this has to do with both diagnostics and data. What I'm trying to describe is basically like a bit more of a backdrop, right? Rather than just understanding the frequency of the mutation for the target you're going after, how it distributes across cancer and thinking about whether you've got some tumor agnostic drug development opportunity or not, like in other words, pan-cancer type opportunity, which I've had the fortune to be associated with a um, handful of programs like that as an entrepreneur and ac- academic. Yeah, okay, I mean that partly, but I mean I mean bigger picture issues of understanding like how does your idea situate in the broader context? Because if you don't actually, you haven't done not just the homework, but like the ongoing work as you're unfolding your tool and toolbox then basically, you know, the likelihood that you're going to have, you know, kind of misalignment, if you will, right, where you're going to like fundamentally miss something and essentially have things unravel by virtue of not just competitive landscape, like, you know, which kind of implies somebody working on the same thing you are. I, I, I mean, in a broader way, like actually this really isn't the unmet need and opportunity that you think it is. I just increasingly think that you can't start a company these days without wedding together at least two of the three pillars that I'm referring to, which is kind of like the therapeutic diagnostic, you know, pairing, therapeutic data pairing, diagnostic data pairing, or ideally all three. So that's my kind of high level answer to that question. I've obviously the devil's in the details. Yeah, great. And so now with that backdrop around company creation, let's switch gears a little bit and would love to hear your perspective on the immunotherapy landscape and perhaps more specifically immuno-oncology and where are we now and what opportunities lie ahead? Well, it's been a frustrating era in a way, right? So like PD-1 antibodies came along and like, you know, we're the big moment, right? And let me, let me just like boil it down in a way that's actually now kind of data supported. But a number I, I've been using for a while is that PD-1 antibodies help about 10% of advanced cancer patients in a heroic way. That's a big number, right? That's like, what other therapy has given us a 10% kind of quantum leap, right? It's a big number, but it was thought to be higher than that. <laughs> like while it was still a work in progress, there were people who certainly thought it was 20%. There were people who thought it was 40%. And like, you know, that part of reason why so many mosquitoes, you know, kind of got drawn to the light or moths got drawn to the light by the you know, PD-1 is an early opportunity and so many Me Too programs and the like. But more to the point is what I hear in that question is, what happened then? Like after PD-1, PD-L1 antibodies were proliferating and saturating the opportunity and, you know, unmasking or not the opportunity, right? Because they're like glioblastoma and pancreatic cancer, essentially not a patient in the universe has benefited from a PD-1 antibody all the way through to cancers like melanoma, which is my super focus area career long with 40% response rate, a few other cancer types, 55% response rates. So there's this gradient, if you will, and along, you know, of, of benefit. 
Anyway, in the aftermath of that came this exuberance of the idea that there are more PD-1s out there, right? That, more, that there are more PD-1, PD-L1 interactions happening in tumors, tumor microenvironments, and we just got to throw more spaghetti <laughs> at the wall, you know, take more shots on goal, and we're going to find them. Well, here we are seven years later, and we haven't found any. It's not to say that there couldn't be more. They're probably going to have a different profile, right? Okay, so what's so amazing about PD-1, PD-L1 interactions right, is that PD-1 receptors play an important reg- negative regulatory role on T-cells and other immune cells to a degree, but particularly T-cells. And PDL one like the foot that presses on the brake, normally expressed in the immune compartment, is co-opted mm-hmm. by some, like, ooh, nasty trick. Good reminder, cancers have access to the whole blueprint, and they, they use that access for their advantage, if you will, right? They read off parts of the blueprint and express or co-opt programs, if you will, biology programs that serve purposes like immune evasion in this case. Uh, any case, so I'm not saying that there couldn't be other targets that borrow from that concept, right? Like uh, basically the kind of immune evasion concepts. And I, to me, that's one of the big areas of, I think, remaining kind of unpicked for, if you will. I mean, new, new, new insights in that space that I'm super excited about. But anyway, the idea that we had a whole bunch of T-cell regulating targets that if we just developed drugs against all of them, we'd find more PD-1. Well, that, that didn't work. But part of what I mean by it didn't work, and I'll just kind of finish the answer this way, is that all of them were developed in biomarker unselected patients. Like there was no notion that you needed to take, let's say like a TIM3, LAG3, or TIGID antibody, which are negative regulators of T-cell function along with PD-1, commonly co-expressed with PD-1, commonly co-expressed with each other, okay? But there was no notion in early, mid-stage, or late development of those antibodies to say, you know... In the model systems, what we see is what I just referred to, coordinated upregulation of these quote-unquote exhaustion markers, these negative regulators, TIM3, LAG3, TIGIT, on tumor infiltrating lymphocytes in actual model systems and human beings. That data existed when these antibodies were moving forward. And you might say, well, if I had a LAG3 antibody, who might benefit most? How about someone who's got tumor infiltrating lymphocytes that express LAG3 on the surface, but not... TIM3 and TIGIT. I mean, I'm, just, I'm being a little bit hypothetical here, but it's not, this is not totally made okay. up. Could you track that population? Could you find that population as they're receiving, for example, PD-1 antibody standard of care treatment, right? And then pull that population into a LAG3 antibody clinical trial, like adding a LAG3 antibody to PD-1 for argument's sake. But like, what does that sound like to you? Like that's precision medicine, right? I mean, it's a different version of precision medicine. And particularly if you had to do it in a dynamic way, I, by the way, found that a company two plus years ago that's like focused on that model, like this, what we refer to as dynamic precision in immuno-oncology drug development. I'm not saying like it's going to be so easy or it's, you know, all of our problems are going to go away. We're going to have 20 approvals subsequent to just executing on this kind of concept. But you get my point that throwing things at the wall to see what sticks, that never would have worked in what we call targeted therapy, you know, oncogene targeted therapy, right? If we had just tried to develop oncogene targeted therapies, probably across cancer, similarly, we would not have approved drugs. That used to be discussed with HER2, which was one obviously one of the early successes in targeted therapy, a third of breast cancer patients are HER2 positive. And all people would do the math on, you know, would we have ever uncovered enough of a signal to actually motivate HER2 program development if those drugs had all been developed in the entire breast cancer population when only a third possibly could get benefit. And so I'm posing the same, you know, kind of problem in immuno-oncology. And we have to flip the script. I mean, we just have to take a hard tack towards hypothesizing and executing on biomarker selection, as in precision medicine concepts and immunotherapy. Great. And so what do you think, where are areas now for opportunity, let's say outside of precision medicine, or perhaps adjacent to precision medicine that you think are undervalued or underappreciated that folks should think about as they're developing oncology assets? Yeah, well, to me, you know, I think we're in a moment of sort of step function expansion in target space coming from functional screening platforms. 
I so commonly go back to so-called dependency map, which is this Broad Institute platform experiment that's been ongoing now for several years, but continuing to shed new light on new potential targets in oncology. And, you know, so as opposed to genomics, let's let's call like kind of the capstone moment of genomic understanding of cancer somewhere in the 2005 to 2010 timeframe. And let's go with the argument that we've largely found everything that you could construe as low-hanging fruit that way. Well, functional insights, and when I talk about dependency map, that's for those who are not familiar, that's a combination screen where cancer, immortalized cancer cell lines, underscore the immortalized cancer cell line part, because that's a restricted swath of the cancer world that's represented by those models. Even when you work with 800 or 1,200 of them, you're still only representing a relatively small subpopulation of all cancers uh, with those available models. In any case, genome-wide CRISPR screening and genome-wide RNAi screening of all potential vulnerabilities, right? So like just depleting, either you know, partially depleting through RNAi or eliminating the gene in the case of CRISPR, doing that pairwise analysis across you know, essentially all available immortalized cancer cell lines. And while that's a, a work in progress because of what I just said, which is that we still have large swaths of cancer that are underrepresented by uh, those immortalized cancer cell lines, nonetheless, it's been mind-blowing the types of insights that come from that approach, right? This functional screening approach. And obviously, ginning up strategies where you use proto-small molecule platforms to do similar types of experiments, some of that work is ongoing, but there's a lot of work needed to really amplify the coverage, if you will, of the you know, sort of drug space that's represented in those kinds of platforms used in the way I'm just describing. Genetic manipulation approach that I just described, combine that with drugs, the types of insights that come there are just like totally unanticipated. Like the, the cancers will have a vulnerability by like selectively targeting a certain gene product, let's say, that you couldn't possibly have predicted like from based on a static understanding of the cancer. Like you need the dynamic, like you need the functional. So here we are in this new universe migrating from mutated targets to what I'm broadly referring to as kind of non-mutated targets. So these are just like happen to be vulnerabilities that are unmasked by virtue of the genetic alterations that happen elsewhere, if you will, in the cancer genome. And people have used the term synthetically valid to describe what I'm referring to. I think I kind of like to move from that definite that term to something bigger because I think everybody feels like they understand how you can get to a PARP inhibitor you know, from a homologous recombination deficiency state and call that synthetically valid. What I'm getting at is a little bit of a broader concept leading to like just a universe of new potential targets for which we need the chemistry advances that have been happening, as you well know, like in adjacent discussions, I'm sure you've been like kind of opining on how amazing the time that we're living in is right now in terms of new technology strategies, platforms for wrestling down targets that, you know, heretofore we used to call undruggable. So combine these sectors um, is what I'm suggesting. And you have almost an unmanageable number of new potential targets to explore and to try to wrestle down with new chemistry approaches. Scorpion Therapeutics, which is a company that I founded two years ago, is like very much focused on what I just described. But there's a growing universe of companies that are adopting a similar stance that we are witnessing kind of a new day in terms of target space expanding. I'll remind you just briefly that oncogene targeted therapy currently construed benefits like about 20% of the cancer population. And we have clinical trials that we feel pretty confident are going to you know, be helpful to people for another 10 or 15%. Let's you know, ballpark it. So you're about a, a third of cancer patients, right, who get a benefit from the genomic insight translated to therapy piece, including ongoing clinical trial as in investigational therapies. So like that leaves two thirds of cancer patients for which we don't have a therapy that produces a Gleevec-like effect, right, where you just blow apart cancer cells, maybe not eliminate all of them, but have the foundations then for a rational combination, you know, HIV-like regimen, if you will, that like puts the disease into remission for a long, long time.
Keith, you've now sat on a number of boards and obviously founded a number of companies. I'd love to hear your perspective on what a good board looks like to you. Mm. And then subsequently, for someone with your background, what can you offer or what do board members like you bring to the table that folks may not be aware of? Yeah, thanks for that question. So many thoughts on this topic, and I'm going to try to boil it down to a couple slash few. I guess the main thing that I think and say about this is that when we talk about diversity on boards, I embrace the first use of that term or you know, the, the kind of conventional use of that term and say, okay, yeah, totally agree. We need diversity on boards and diversity by you know background, be it ethnicity, gender, you know, and the like. But in answer to your question, I would say what I add to that discussion is diversity of background by, let's call it constituency you represent or expertise you bring to the table, right? That's maybe an easier way to, to talk about it. Companies have so many things that they need, they need to, you know, problems they need to solve. But the biotech companies I know are trying to translate science to medicine in the case of drugs or, you know, to a diagnostic or the combination of the two, right? They're like, this is like, that's the core of what they're actually trying to do. A little crazy to not have people on the board who do that. I don't just mean have done that. You get my point that like the problem with veterans, and I'm, I'm soon about to be one of these, by the way, right? So the problem with veterans who've been in the trenches, done a thing or two, like I'll put it this way, the first half of my career, roughly 2000 to 2010, looked very different than 2010 to now, right? Technology has wildly changed. I can't talk anymore about things I did in 2000 to 2010. And when I say, when I say things I did, I mean like in collaboration with companies, interaction with FDA, biomarker related matters in terms of trying to develop a companion diagnostic, like those aren't relevant anymore, right? I mean, it's like they're, they're silly antiquated stories that like are fun to tell over a drink, but they don't have much to do with like current problems. So you need people in the trenches, right? And this is what I'm getting at, right? Like in the trenches yeah. around, around the table, but I don't mean the entire board needs to have like what I'm describing, like, which is like a, let's say a clinical translational, you know, footprint in academia like that. Like, okay, no, look at one board member. Fine. I get it. Having an operator like that, right? Who's like a current operator, ideally, I'm in my mind anyway, in another biotech company. I mean, I get it that like the boards of those other biotech companies would like their operators to focus and create value within that company. But I mean, as you know, there's been a growth in that subsector, if you will, in terms of board mm-hmm. participation by you know current operators who are you know clinical development experts or translational yeah. experts and having that representation. What of course the constituents who have been around board tables for the longest time are business and finance experts, either in companies or as investors. I mean, this is the thing like, like what comes along, you know, as a package deal for private companies with your Series A investors and your Series B investors and your crossover investors is board representation of people who have super high IQs, have phenomenally important backgrounds in terms of having been in and around companies for their career and understand a lot about the levers, if you will, and how to be thinking about trying to create the value, preserving cash along the way, making it to relevant milestones, right? I mean, like that art and science is super important. But what I'm getting at is I feel like that representation has, has always been pretty solid. And particularly when investors venture firms as part of the deal <laughs> take a yeah. seat. Like then the access is guaranteed. And so my feeling is this, there's this balance that, you know, when I joined boards, well, starting in 2013, I joined like the Loxo board, the company I founded and then co-founded. And Clovis Oncology was the first board of an existing company that I joined. And a couple since then, and I've more often than not joined the board of the companies that I've founded, you know, amongst the set of seven companies. So my portfolio has been kind of a you know mix, if you will, of companies that I've founder director of and others where I'm just a founder. And around those that collection of board tables, like I increasingly seeing this kind of kind of broader representation as companies mature, but I, but I'm really talking about doing this, like having this representation early, really right off the bat. 
as being something that I think is really quite important. So while it's true that like you're still talking about minority number of board members, that's not the point. The point isn't about voting power. The point is about having voices at the table who reflect on what management has been saying and at like even at the meeting been saying and you know synthesizing and giving voice then to one's reaction slash insights to the rest of the board, you know, from your area of core expertise, as the other directors do from their area of core expertise. Yeah. And and on that point, Keith, as you now have sat on boards, how has your own approach to being a board member changed? As in, like, what have you learned along the way about how you can be most effective? Well, this gives me a good chance to almost undo a little bit of what I just said a moment ago, which is (laughs) only to say that, you know, there are things that I know, I reasonably well know, let's say, where I have a fair amount of confidence. And there are so many things I don't know. And man has serving on boards taught me that. Like, I mean, I, I, I think I knew that going in that like, I just, I didn't understand what was like behind the curtain. Like, I, mean, I didn't know how the wizard was like operating this whole thing. And yet I was working with these companies, right? And like, certainly like the CMO, CSO, CEO, and I would have close ongoing working relationship, even just, you know, as an academic investigator with no further involvement than that, just holding up that role. I would have, you know, kind of ongoing dialogue with those members of the team but I didn't understand like what was going on <laughs> in the boardroom. I didn't understand why decisions were being made when they were being made. And sometimes decisions that I thought didn't make a lot of sense, didn't seem to connect with like what the conversations we've been having before between you know me and company leadership. Anyway, the point is that now I understand a bit more and I'm still learning so much about what I was referring to before, which is kind of the lever pulling. Again, keep the Wizard of Oz, you know, kind of metaphor here. Now having been you know, had a chance to learn from just some world class minds who have you know a ton of expertise, a ton of pattern recognition, a ton of been there, done that, you know, experience to bring to the table. When it comes to that piece, that's where, unlike the comment I made about technology from 2005 being kind of antiquated and not so relevant to a 2022 discussion of thinking about navigating to the clinic, you know, when it comes to more the kind of finance and business side of how to build and run a company, there I'd say it's of course not a flat world in that sense, but Nonetheless, there's just a ton of accumulated knowledge there that I don't just wait until the conversation turns to clinical development and translational science and like and then you know say my piece. No, like I'm all ears and all questions, you know, in terms of trying to be the best possible board member I can be. Because I guess what I'm getting at, and I think what your question points to, is that what I'm suggesting is that boards need to be a whole made up of parts of like the relevant expertise that the companies needs to have expertise in. But similarly, every board member needs to try to become as complete a board member as they possibly can be, right? Because it's not just that you're voting. You are having a group dialogue about each of these facets of which you need to be a part. It's not about, you know, handing the microphone around and having, you know, your podium time. Far from it. I mean, what's exciting about it, I'll maybe make this as my last comment of proselytizing board membership. (laughs) For academics, like that's, I'm, I'm like chronically kind of amplifying that point is that there's so much to learn. The learning curve is so steep. And so like you might have been on your learning curves as an academic investigator and scientist for 20 years, let's say, and feel like, oh yeah, I think think I have a feel for how this ecosystem works. I, you know, I'm feeling good about my grant portfolio and how to keep that going and so on and so forth. But man, it's super invigorating to like put yourself at the bottom of another set of really steep learning curves this is a matter of like collectively trying to solve inefficiencies as mm. as directors, as new companies, connecting dots that haven't been connected before, bringing together therapeutics, diagnostics, and data broadly construed 
in new ways. I mean, it's it's complicated, I admit, but there's a there's so much more data to work with and wrestle down and make use of. Just in that example of how to be thinking in new ways about what our opportunity is now, we're chronically faced with not just new technology, but the opportunity to solve problems in unique ways and arguably pulling together more components. That just requires a board that, again, where everybody's working toward the same goal of kind of trying to be, if you will, a holistic director. Yeah. And, you know, to the point of thinking about how to do things in new ways, and particularly given your position as director of clinical research at at MGH, over the course of the pandemic, and perhaps the pandemic served as a forcing function to drive change, are there certain silver linings as you see them of how clinical research is done now that you're really excited by? Yeah, I mean, I'm both excited and a little bit despairing of mm. where we are right now, like as yeah. you asked this question, because it so happens that because oncology is this enterprise in the academic setting where it's multifaceted, our research programs are like running dozens of trials, dozens and dozens of trials simultaneously and doing bedside event translational research around therapeutics, as I was suggesting. We're juggling, right? I mean, and we're doing all of this work you know, sort of simultaneously across multiple different cancer types and all that. So anyway, my point being that uh, it's because of that, that MGH leadership asked me to be the director of COVID clinical research in March of 2020. I served in that capacity for 18 months. The first two or three months were the simply craziest phase of my life. I always thought I had been busy, but not nothing like that. That was just a, a really, really intense time. Anyway, my point is that uh, I had a you know, front row seat at watching the way in which IRB review times turn into 24-hour processes. FDA had always kind of had a rapid review, you know, kind of concept that they use for, you know, compassionate use protocols and things of this sort or in, you know, single patient INDs. And they absolutely like operationalized that broadly for COVID. I mean, they were just doing things literally overnight. So our regulatory, you know, kind of environment, if you will, just like what I used to refer to as walls turned into like wet tissue paper. Like you just, you could get new things done in 48 hours it was crazy. So here we were like standing up a portfolio of clinical trials, doing bedside events, translational research for COVID in ways that felt like, well, well, can't we kind of partner up and at least in life-threatening diseases, broadly construed, can't we similarly kind of like create the efficiencies needed to be able to maintain something like this uh, without having to stay up, you know, like 20 hours (laughs) a day and work seven days a week, as most of us were doing at the time. Any case, so there's that. But then there's also, I think, more to the point of your question is sort of like upping our game in terms of leveraging digital solutions, digital technologies, you know, to really lower the activation energy in terms of doing clinical investigation in particular, also bringing clinical trials to patients in a, in a truly meaningful way. We've been talking about that since before COVID, but I mean, like really doing it. I mean, in oncology, 10% of cancer patients go on clinical trials. We think that number like is really slowing us down. You have big academic centers that are, you know, doing most of the clinical trial accrual concentrating select, you know, fraction of patients, not particularly representative. That's a a well-acknowledged issue. But like, why can't we use some of the tools that we use during COVID? Like where we started actually letting patients stay at home, receive investigational therapy and interacting with them, not just through Zoom, but like increasingly like relying on things that were more sort of digital platform solutions. We had a recognition of the opportunity there. As you, I think, are well aware, there's actually are, there's a subsector that's like, is developing tools, you know, for that purpose, obviously not just for oncology purposes, but I'm kind of disheartened to see things kind of go back to the way they used to be in terms of clinical trial conduct. And like this notion that, no, we got to haul patients in all the time. That's the way it has to be. We have to have like face-to-face interactions with them, have five people ask the same set of questions, 
like, yeah. like always did. We need to like digitally enter in in unstructured format, you know, what these five different accounts of the what the patient said were. And then we have to spend the next few weeks like reconciling the five different accounts. Well, the patient was patient had just one experience, right? They're trying to describe just one thing. Like, why couldn't we use a PRO tool? I don't mean like for doing PRO research. I mean, sure. why can't we have a smartphone app that a patient uses to give us customized information relevant to the therapy they're receiving? So we understand how they're functioning, how they're what they're experiencing in terms of symptoms and side effects, right? And then we look at that and we do the reconciliation work on the fly. And like, why isn't that the data? Like why we spend all this like time and effort, like trying to like, you know, reconcile, you know, essentially incorrect data. That drives me crazy. And I'll just close that answer by saying, like, the tools are coming. COVID taught us that we have massive inefficiencies that can kind of be made to go away. Um, But here we are with the pendulum kind of swinging back in a way. And I just, we were looking at something that was more like the good that we want in clinical investigation, at least. And the average price point right now for enrollment of a cancer patient on a clinical trial, pretty much any phase, $150,000, $150,000. That's insane. There's $150,000 worth of work that needs to be done to take care of a patient. In the case of cancer, that could be like a patient who's on study for two months. Ours, like, I mean, if you talk about inefficiency, like you can unpack that number and I think make the case that we've got a lot of work to do. Maybe here's the final, final thought on this. What I really worry about is at Loxa, the first company that I co-founded, the first program that we went after and succeeded in going after was NTRAC, a fusion target that's present in 0.2% of cancer patients, 0.2%, sparsely distributed across essentially all cancer types. They're hard to find patients. We succeeded. I mean, we we, we created an FDA-approved drug with real value, I mean, tangible value that the stock market reflected. But the point being that now when people are looking at a 0.2% target, they are doing the math and thinking like, no, like the oh, activation okay. energy, the inefficiencies, the co- total cost, you know, to do this, like is, I, I'm not going to pursue it. And I'm thinking, well, like the Antrac example, like 80% response rates and like extraordinary durability. So even just with monotherapy having like benefit that everybody would celebrate, you know, FDA payers, you name it. And the idea that like it's activation energy issues and all in cost that would break the model and have innovative biotech companies not going after you know, kind of what I'm referring to is kind of rare disease populations in an otherwise common condition of cancer. Like that's heartbreaking. I mean, no, 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 we need opposite. We need to like, we need to make it super efficient so that there's incentive to go after and like not the impedance to go after such opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And what do you think is driving that reversion to the old pre-pandemic ways? Is it biotechs? Is it FDA? Is it academic institutions? What, What are the driving factors? Yeah, I think it's it's kind of paranoia in a way about what might we miss, right? I mean, and I, I think the academics, I think it's pretty clear. We, but I mean, you can hear me celebrating, you know, the idea of like this ideal world of efficiency, you know, patients yeah. like reporting their data in a very user-friendly way and us receiving their data in a user-friendly way and and, and more efficiently, right? Like, like leveraging technology for that purpose. Academics, I think, like nod their head in agreement with that um, basic concept. I think the concern really comes between, you know, let's focus on drug development here. So like drug developers and the FDA and that relationship, like what might you miss? And by, by miss, I mean, in what way might you imagine a situation where you're filing your NDA and the data has been pulled together using unconventional methods and is produces a fact pattern that raises some red flag that causes the FDA to say, you know, 
there's something going on here. Patients are describing some phenomenology here that like needs to be further unpacked. I mean, I'm, just, I'm, I'm imagining a scenario. I don't know. I can't really think of what it is that could be produced here that would be like an anomaly, like our false positive, right? Like something that yeah. is true about the products. If the argument is that, well, we would like to collect data in the old fashioned way. And what I would argue is kind of low resolution way, like seeing a patient like once per quote unquote cycle, if it's every three weeks or every four weeks, right? And not collecting data on the 20 days between every 21 days when you're seeing a patient, like I would argue that's low resolution data and that's a problem, right? If, mm-hmm. you, if what you were to say is, well, I don't want high resolution data because I'm worried I might, what I might see, I'd say, well, actually, don't we all actually want to know like prospectively what actually is happening? So you don't actually face a situation where you have a, a marketed product that has to be pulled off the market. Like it's, or, you know, black box label added or, you know, the like. In any case, I think there's a real inefficiency problem that's going to persist because there's a first mover concern of cut out the middleman, not send a monitor on site to like interrogate something tangible. Like, and, you know, and all this happened in the ether in terms of the flow of data from patients to clinical sites and, yeah. and so on. What way am I sticking my neck out? I don't think there's a real answer to that question, to be honest. There's just so much more upside than downside in my world yeah. view. Totally agree. You have to get there. Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, you know, the optimist in me hopes that, you know, as this next generation of both biotech leaders and leaders at regulatory agencies are digital natives, that they will start to drive some of this adoption uh, and acceleration of digital tools. You and I both being in this ecosystem, this Boston Cambridge ecosystem, it's easy to say that basically venture back biotech, like that's where innovation my, my whole career. So the past yeah. you know, 20 years, like that's where you see, I mean, I, I hesitate to use the phrase risk-taking, but like but more just like that's where the innovation, the, you know, efficiency gains time and again have come. And it's, and here I mean like therapeutic developer adopting innovative platform that cuts a year off of drug development time, gets you up the accrual curve, you know, that much faster, gets you insights in terms of either things on the efficacy side or the toxicity side around your product, you know, that you then allow you to pivot or adjust or think differently about rational combinations or like get like the ways in which acceleration could come. I think it's evident. And as you said, it's, you know, digital natives is a good term. I think as, as people, the more and more people use, you know, what I'm waving at you right now, smartphones, and they get yeah. used to the efficiency gains that they get from software in their day-to-day life and in their interacting with the retail sector and thinking like, why can't there be an adaptable user-friendly interface that queries me about how I'm feeling today, not bombarding me with 120 questions. No, just like yep. questions, four key gating questions to which yep. if the answer is no, you're done for the day. Like uh, if the answer to one of them is yes, then you face 10 more questions because you need to unpack that a little bit more. This company that I referred to before, Apricity Oncology is like actually, we mm. developed a product to do exactly that in cancer immunotherapy treatment slash you know, clinical research, just because it, it just like, it was just staring at us. Like it's like, it's on our path. Like, how can we not develop such a tool and figure out how to integrate it, if you will, in terms of therapeutic development? So, I mean, it's like easy to sneak that in as an example, but I, I just don't, to me, it's like not that clever. I think it just needs to be how we think about communication of information. I mean, yeah, totally agree, Keith. You know, before we wrap up, and if I could ask you to take a moment to just personally reflect, given all that you've seen during your career, what's one piece of advice you'd give your younger self? knowing all that you now know? I mean, it is a page from the playbook that I adopted in a way, uh, but it just has to be updated always. So here's how I'll frame it. So like when I was Mm. doing my fellowship, I didn't undertake a master's degree, but rather I took the biostatistics classes that were part of a master's 
in clinical investigation that was offered at Penn, which is an outstanding program, because I reasoned that I didn't need to be a biostatistician, I didn't need to be able to do my own biostatistics. But if I was going to design clinical trials, this really was just about like kind of sample size calculation and thinking through just like how do you set up a proper clinical trial to test hypothesis and get an interpretable answer, which believe it or not, in the year 2000 in cancer, like the literature, like up to that moment was just like littered mm-hmm. with 14 patient cohorts that weren't testing anything. I mean, it was just like really just wondered what was the prospective idea and like why 14 and why did you stop? And anyway, so point is that I took on that kind of course of study, which was a time investment, a big time investment. And it turned out to be super satisfying. I'd still collaborated with biostatisticians. I mean, obviously still to this day that I do, right? I never like pretended that my goal was to be a biostatistician or replace them. It was so that I could have conversations with them. The challenge that the younger me now would face is that I would have to point myself in the direction of computational biology or, you know, where else? I mean, I, I would say, I dare say even like chemistry and really understanding how the chemistry toolbox is being elaborated, maybe pick one area and like kind of, you know, delve deep there, gain some content expertise that allows you to appreciate how a toolbox that you are likely going to need to tap into, how it's evolving, where it's got a long way to go, where like kind of the opportunities are to really like tap and leverage such a thing, mostly so that you can have intelligent conversations, right? With people, your collaborators, let's say academically, or your teammates and partners in terms of who must you have around the table, right? Like who, yeah. who are absolutely essential. And I like just quickly on that point, back to you know Scorpion, the company that I founded a couple of years ago, the three academic co-founders, myself and Gaddy Getz, who's a computational biology genius at the Broad Institute, who I you know was a kind of an academic partner in crime, who we needed if we were going to go after like this kind of broad new target space that was emerging of you know non-mutated targets. And our third academic co-founder, Leron Barpaled, is a cancer biology trained scientist, but he had basically put himself under the tutelage of a chemist and learned and developed a platform technology, you know, leveraging covalent chemistry to basically screen for molecules that could potentially wrestle down undruggable targets, uh, so so-called chemical proteomics. And this was like the chocolate in the peanut butter, uh, Reese's peanut butter cup ad, like, you know, like it was just basically... You know, as we were having conversations and thinking about like, okay, what kind of problems are we going to try to solve as a group? Who needs to be around the table? What I'm getting at is that the younger version of me would like have at least tried to pick up in my early career or even training days enough knowledge to be able to have intelligent conversations here. So this is like auditing courses. This is digesting content online. This is trying to up your game one step out of your core discipline where you actually have been training, like the area that you've been like most in the trenches. Add to that. Just that one additional toolkit, if you will, conversance, ability to have conversations in that in that area. That's to me the sweet spot. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's three to five of those now, right? Maybe mm. maybe the, the, like the complexity, if you will, has gotten to a degree that it's not just a matter of one additional competency. It's it is a few. In some ways maybe right, but anyway, you get my point. Like be a chronic hobbyist in these kind yeah. of areas while you're a professional in the core domain where you can you know kind of uniquely deliver your expertise. Yeah, great. Well, Keith, thank you for joining us today. It was it was a pleasure. We covered a wide range of topics and really enjoyed the conversation. As did I. Thanks so much for the great questions and the discussion. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. 
Until next time.